Well, we heard the first hour about change and the, how God wants to lead us through change. And I'm, I'm trying to think as we're going through this, does this message that I have fit in with that? And I believe it does because there are often obstacles to change. Yes, change does not go un, uncontested, uh, not just from within ourselves, but also from without. We have to realize the Bible teaches us we have an enemy. We are born again into a, into a family that has an enemy, uh, an enemy that, w- that comes to steal, kill, and destroy, an enemy that came at Jesus to stop him, and, and, and an enemy that still comes at his body to try to stop us. And we need to learn. The Word of God gives us instruction of how to overcome. In fact, there's a tremendous reward for overcoming as you look through the book of Revelation. I want to look again, we're going to talk about a story that you're all familiar with, but to do that, I want to lay a little background so we can, have, we can look at this very familiar story, perhaps through little different eyes. And to do that, I want to just start by reading through Psalm 1. Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But this is what I wanted you to see. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He doesn't just get it out on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. He doesn't just get it out for five minutes on every morning and think I've done my job today. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. And the one that does that shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of the water that brings forth its fruit in season whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he does shall prosper. goes on to talk about the ungodly. But I want to, this is our foundation, because we're talking about change today, and a tree of life, a tree is planted. Planted means it's not moving all over the place. Planted means it is rooted and grounded in something, and because it's rooted and grounded, it's not going to blow over, it's not going to change. We know what what's, difficult storms are like around here, I lived for a while in Oklahoma where it's, in fact, it was in Tulsa, which is, which is the tornado alley it's known as. And I've seen houses blow over. I've seen all kinds of things like that. But trees, mature trees that are deeply rooted, they may bend over, but they don't become uprooted unless there's something wrong in the tree. I had a tree in a neighborhood we lived in outside of Boston when I was practicing law. And we were, a huge storm came through, and all of a sudden I heard this enormous crash went out the next morning to see that this huge tree had fallen over on a car. And I said, how could that happen until I looked at the tree where it had broken and it was rotten inside? It wasn't healthy. You didn't know that until the tree went over. So the psalmist is talking about a tree that's planted. So whatever comes, the changes that come on the outside don't blow it away. The other thing is because it's properly rooted, it bears fruit. And we are here to bear fruit for Christ. John chapter 15, Jesus said, I didn't, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I chose you that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And he's not talking about oranges and apples and things like that. He's talking about souls, lives changed. So we're going to look at a man who wrote this, and we're going to see how this man handled the situation. And the reason he was able to handle it this way is because what he wrote was something that he lived. To do, look at this story, we need to get a little background. So I want to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and lay a foundation for what we're going to talk about, for this story we're going to go through. 
Genesis chapter 12, God has chosen a man through whom he wants to form a nation. God wants to reveal himself to the world. I mean, in the beginning, in the garden, he could be seen. Adam and Eve, they knew God. They didn't see him through any filter. They didn't see him through any, because they saw him face to face because there was nothing to separate them, no sin. And of course, we know in the garden, Satan comes in, tempts them, and because of the sin, the fall is in separation that we will not truly grasp until we get to heaven and see how far man fell. But God's process from that point on was to restore man back to that original position. And one of the ways he chose to do that was to choose a nation for himself. And through God's relationship with that nation, God's plan was to reveal to the rest of the world what he was like. And he didn't choose an existing nation. He started his own nation. And he chose a man who was a moon worshiper, Abram. And he appeared to him and spoke to him. And this is what he says to him. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country from your family and from your father's house. That was change. To a land that I will show you and I will make a great nation. And I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And this is what I wanted you to see. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Then over in chapter 15, God appears to him again. And God makes promises to him again. And Abram's response is, how do I know that these things are going to be so? How do I know that I can trust you? And God takes him through a process, which we don't have time to go through this morning, by which he enters into a blood covenant with him. And that blood covenant is a commitment. It's the highest form of agreement that there is. Marriage is based on a blood covenant. And the reason it's the highest form is because it is not just a contract or an exchange of promises. It is literally a union. So the we really do become a we. (laughs) Whether it's I, you, or we, it's still we. (laughs) Sometimes I think the women have a better understanding of this covenant than we do. (laughs) God wanted to show, you can trust me because I've entered into this blood covenant with you and the essence of this covenant is we have become one. That means everything that I am, you are. Everything you are, I am. Everything you have, I have. And everything I have, you now have. What's important to you is now important to me. But what's important to me now becomes important to you. Then we pick up in chapter 17. And I want to read this part. Because this is again important to what we're going to look at. And Abram was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to him again. And Abram said to him, and he said to Abram, I am almighty God. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his, Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, from my side, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of many nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, and I have made you a father of many nations." And I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations from you, and kings from, will come from you. Verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your descendants after you, and their generations, to be an everlasting covenant, and look at this, and to be God to you and your descendants after you. To be God to you. That means he was not God, he was the creator of everyone else but he was to be God to them. 
That means he was to be the source of everything to them. They were to look to him. He wanted to be their protection, their provision, their direction. He was everything for them. And he wanted them to look to him only to trust him for those things. That's what he's saying there. Verse 8, And I will give you to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as a everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I am giving you this land and to your, you and your descendants, and I will be to them and your God. And God said to Abram, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout your generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between you and me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then he goes on to say, every male child on the eighth day of his life shall be circumcised. He said, the covenant that I've entered into you, the sign of this covenant is that the male shall be circumcised in the flesh of their foreskin. Constant reminder every day through the normal processes of life because the other nations were not circumcised that you belong to God and God belongs to you and this is your reminder that you are in covenant with this God and he is in covenant with you. But of course human beings tend to forget, tend to tend to, tend to take things that were intended originally to be a sign of something that was real, and then it just becomes a routine, a ritual, and it loses its meaning and significance in life. Now we're going to fast forward to a time. What's happened in the between is that God has raised up uh, Abram, and then the generations after them, Isaac and Jacob, and then uh, God, uh, God's plan, God's desire, was that th- he be their king. And one of the principles was that the blessing of a nation was tied to the righteousness of the king. And just think of this. God's saying, I want to be your king. So their blessing, their prosperity was to be tied to how righteous God is. That's what God wanted to give them. But they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to blend in. They didn't want to be different from the rest of the world, which is what God intended for them to be. But they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be accepted, so they looked at other nations, and the other nation's identity was a king that they could see. And so through the prophet Samuel, they, say to, they come to him and say, we want our own king. We want to be like every other nation. And then God speaks through them and to, through Samuel and says, if this, if this is what you choose, this is what's going to cost you. He's going to have to raise taxes to support him. He's going to have armies. He's going to take your daughters, your men, your money in order to support his appetite and his ambition. And they choose to have a king over God. So God chooses a man named Saul and sends Samuel to appoint him. And that story is in, in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 10. I'm going to look there quickly because in there we see the root of the problem that we're going to see, and then we're going to see the root of the answer. 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel has appointed Saul. God shows him. In verse 7, it says, The Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you will prophesy, and you will be turned into another man. Instant change. 
Let it be then that when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. Now he gives him instruction. You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer the burnt offerings. The king couldn't offer the burnt offerings because he wasn't ordained by God to do that. That had to be the prophet. And make sacrifices and peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come, and then I shall show you what to do. Well, Saul goes down to Gilgal, he and his army, when they get down there, when they get down there, what they discover is that um, the Philistines are there. And that's over in chapter 13. And they find out the Philistines are lined up in battle. And it says their numbers are like the sea. There's an enormous army. And Saul's army looks at them and panics and goes to hiding caves. And Saul's left alone, basically, with his army afraid and run and hiding. And now Saul sees the Philistines. He keeps looking at his calendar. Day one gone by. Day two gone by. Day three's gone by. Day four's gone by. Day five's gone by. The prophet hasn't shown up. Day six goes by. Day seven goes by. Surely he'll show up today. Day seven goes by and the preacher's late. Now what's he going to do? His men have dispersed. They're afraid. The enemy's out there. And so Saul takes things into his own hands. And he does the burnt offering himself to be prepared. So the, the burnt offering was so that God would be with him in the battle. And now once he's taken the things into his own hands, now the prophet shows up. And Samuel says, what have you done? And Saul says, listen to this, I saw the people and, and, and that the people were scattered from me. That's his own soldiers. And I saw that you did not come within the days that were appointed, and I saw that the Philistines were gathered together at Michmash, and I said, the Philistines will now come down to me, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. So I felt compelled, and I took things into my own hands and offered the burnt offering. And said, Saul says, Samuel says, you've done foolishly because you've not kept the Lord's commandment. Now that's background. Now we're going to go over to chapter 17, a very familiar story, and we're going to walk through this together. Because I believe in this old famous story of David and Goliath, there's a lesson for us today. There's a lesson for us today. And what we do in our daily life, what we do in our own, our own walk with God, what we do every day, decisions we make every day, have everything to do with what's going to happen when the giant confronts us, when the unexpected happens. So let's start reading through this very same famous story. Now the Philistines, the same Philistines we just read about, they were gathered their army together to battle and were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and they camped between Succoth and Azekah and that other place. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and they encamped in the valley of Elah. So they were lined up on two sides of a valley and they drew up in battle array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other with the valley between them. And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath, from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. That's somewhere between nine and twelve feet. And he had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. That's a, that's a, a, a metal armor, metal coat that's like a, a net, that's metal net, so that swords couldn't penetrate through it. And uh, the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. 
And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels and and a shield bear went before him. And he stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Now look at this. Am I not a Philistine and you are the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come out and down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now Saul and all Israel, listen to this, heard these words of the Philistine, and they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now we're going to switch scenes. Now David, the youngest of the father's sons, was the son of an Ephratite, Bethlehem Judah, whose name was Jesse, who had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to battle. They're soldiers, and he gives the name of them. Verse 14, David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. So David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near and presented himself 40 days, listen to this, morning and evening. So this has gone on for 40 days, twice a day. 80 times they've seen Goliath come out. They've seen his armor. They've seen his weapons. They've seen his shield bearer. And he has come out, and 80 times they've heard him declare who he was, who they were, and what he was going to do to them. And each time, the professionally trained soldiers have run back to their camp and hidden in terror. Forty days, 80 times, and they haven't changed what they're doing. In this process of change, the devil will tell you who you are and what you can't do and what he's going to do to you so that you'll stay hiding back in the camp with everyone else that's afraid, intimidated to stay inside where it's safe. So David decides, his father says, I want you to take some food to your brothers to go out and see how they're doing, which he did from time to time. Verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with his keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse his father had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to fight, shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army, as they had every other day. And David left his supplies in the hands of the supply keeper, ran to the army, came, and greeted his brothers. And as they talked with him, ah, the giant came out. And coming up from the armies of the Philistine, he spoke according to the same words, and David heard him. Now what we've seen is Saul heard him, the soldiers heard him, now David hears him. Same words. They see the exact same thing. And David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come out? Surely he has come to defy Israel. Now they're repeating what Goliath said. 
The devil tells you who are you are, what you can't do, and then we turn around and repeat it to one another. It shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich him with great riches, give him his daughter, and make his family free from ta- exempt from taxes. And David spoke to the men who stood by, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Look at the next words. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the army of the living God? Remember what the Philistine said. Am I not a Philistine and your servants of Saul? That's how he saw them. The army of Israel saw themselves as servants of Saul. And they saw this Philistine as a great giant and a great threat. Now keep in mind, Goliath was real. He really was 9 to 12 feet high. That armor that he had on was really there. The shield that he had on was really there. The bronze sheaves on his shins were really there. He really did have a spear, a sword. He really did have... Those were very real threats that could kill. But David didn't see the Philistine through the eyes that the army saw them. David didn't see the Philistine through the eyes that even Saul saw them. David didn't hear the words of the Philistine through the same set of ears that the army of Israel heard him. By the way, that's the trained army. This is a shepherd boy. No military training. No armor. No strategy. But he saw things through a different set of eyes. He heard things through a different set of ears. And his response is, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I went back into Genesis to show you what that means. David understood what God had said to Abram. That I will be God to you. I will be God to you. And you will be my people. Whoever blesses you, blesses me. Whoever curses you, curses me. So David hears these words and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. He hasn't cursed the nation of Israel. He's defying the army that belongs to God. He has no covenant with God. And he's threatening a people who have a covenant with God. Now let's go on. Because it's one thing to sit in church and say that. Now watch the reaction that he gets. Because when you start standing up and speaking the word of God, when the natural thing to do is panic, when the natural thing to do is respond the way we've been trained by the world to respond, it's normal to be afraid. It's normal to do this. You need to do these things. And somebody stands up and says, no, 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 no. That's not what God's Word says. Watch where the first opposition comes. Not from Goliath. Not from the Philistines. Not from their enemies. 
Verse 27, the people answered and said to him in this manner, so shall be done for them who kills him. Verse 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and his anger was aroused against David. And he said, why have you come down here? And with whom have you left the sheep? Wait a minute, boy. You forgot your place. You're the kid. What are you doing coming up here? You've left your responsibilities. Go back and take care of the sheep. This is a man's job. We're soldiers. You're the, you're my, you're the runt. Just go back. I know your pride and your insolence. So he's attacking his own brother's motives. I know your pride and the insolence of your heart, for you've come down here to see the battle. <laughs> like David says. David says, what have I done now? <laughs> it's like, this has gone on before. What have I done now? Is there not a cause? Is there not a reason to stand up? And then he turned from him toward another and said the same things, and the people all answered as the first one. Now when the words of David spoken were heard, they were reported to Saul. I bet they were. Somebody starts standing up and talking the way God talks, the word's going to get spread around. And Saul sent for him. Now Saul's the king, anointed to be king. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go out and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, whoa, 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 whoa. Now the king's telling him. His brothers have told him. His family's told him, no, you're not, you can't do this. You're out of place here. Now the authority he's been told to respect. Someone he's trusted. Someone who's the king, the, the top authority. He's telling him he can't do it to go get back in his place. And Saul said to David, you're not able, notice, you're not able to do this. His brothers challenged his motive. The king's challenging his ability. You're not able to go up against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, you're too young. You're not qualified enough. You're not experienced enough. You're not educated enough. You're not old enough. And he's a man of war from his youth. Look at David's response. And David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep. And when a lion and a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth when, I arose, when it arose against me. And I caught it by, a beard, by its beard and struck it and killed it. So David's looking back. Not, David's not just full of himself. David's gone through a process where things in his everyday life... Battles in his everyday life that he didn't even understand what they were preparing him for because he acted on what he believed. God was using those challenges to prepare him for this moment. And there are challenges that you've gone through in your life. And then those where you've been willing to trust God, you've been willing to have your heart right, to be teachable so that God could bring about change in your life, you have no idea what's around the corner that God has been preparing you for when this giant raises himself that you have no preparation for in the natural, but the lion and the bear that God's taken you through 
have prepared you for this. What is one of the reasons we need to learn to be thankful? To learn to go back over things regularly. God, thank you. You did this in my life. Thank you. I remember this time when I stood and I had no answer. There was no food, no situation, no money coming in. And I knew you would take care of. And there somebody came to me. This situation opened up. There was favor in this place. Go back over those. Celebrate those regularly. Teach them to your children so they'll learn what God has done in your life. So that they can take the the heritage of the faith that you've developed and you can begin to share it with them. And David obviously was aware of this, rehearsed these things. He says, no, no, no. I've watched with this. I've walked in this covenant. It's been tested. I love this. Your servant killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised. He saw Goliath. Not through the armor, not through his height. Yes, he saw those things. He wasn't oblivious to them, but he interpreted them through a different set of glasses. A glass, well, the Bible talks it a renewed mind. A mind that has been renewed according to this word, this covenant. It takes the reality of what's really there and then interprets it in terms of what has God said about this situation. Who does God say this is? Who does, what does God say? Who does God say I am? Not on my own, but as a child of God. And David says, I killed the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like of one of them. Why? Seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. The word of is an interesting word. Little words in the Bible mean something to me. This isn't actually the one. But people in the office know that I have a fountain pen I use to sign things with. And they know that that's my pen. The word my means it belongs to Pastor John. Of means it's a possessive pronoun. It means belongs to. So when David says he's defied the armies of the living God, he's saying this uncircumcised Philistine who has no covenant relationship with God has defied this army that belongs to the living God. He's in trouble. He's messed with the wrong people. Moreover, David said, verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Somebody's willing to go. So Saul clothed David with his armor. So Saul's still thinking... In the natural. So Saul says, you're going to need some special armor. Saul's over seven feet tall. He gives him his own armor. You can just see this kid with the armor on. And he tries to walk in it. And David says, um, David says, well, this isn't going to work. David tried it on, and then he took it off, and he said, I can't walk with these, verse 39. I have not tested them. And David took them off. He took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones. I had a teacher once say he took five stones because Saul had, Goliath has four brothers. From the book, and he put them in the shepherd's bag in his pouch, which he had, and the sling in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came and drew near to David. Notice for 40 days, the movement has been. They line up in the morning, Goliath comes out, the soldiers of Israel line up, here's threat, and they go back. The shepherd boy comes up, 
Goliath comes out, the shepherd boy moves towards the enemy, not away from the enemy. He moved toward the battle, not away from the battle. Now it gets interesting. So the Philistine came out and began drawing near to David, and the man who bore the shield went before him. That's very important. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. Now the enemy's going to talk to him. First of all, his brothers questioned his, his motives. His king questions his ability, and now the enemy's going to question him. He's going to challenge him. All, notice this, all with words. All that's happened so far are words. Goliath spoke words for 40 days, morning and night. David spoke words back. His brothers spoke words to him. The king spoke words to him. David answered with words. Now the giants speaking words to him. All telling what's going to happen. What does the Bible say Satan is? He's the accuser of the brethren. Words. Words. He'll speak to you directly or through people. You're not enough. You can't do this. Look where you failed here. You didn't never have this happen. God's never done this for you. Words, 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 words. Remember what Jesus said about him. He's a what? A liar. And he's the father of lies. All right. But you've got to have your mind renewed to the word. So the Philistine says to David, Am I a dog? Verse 43. That you would come to me with sticks, and the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David said, the first time in 40 days, anyone's answered him. And David said to the Philistine, You come with me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. In other words, that's all you got? But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God who belongs to the armies of Israel, whom you defied. So you've defied the God I'm coming to you with. And you've only got a sword and a shield and a javelin. The giant's looking at David's weapons. David's looking at the giant's weapons and saying, there's no way that's enough. I'm not coming to you with my weapons. This day, then he says, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you, take your head from you. And this day I will give your carcasses to the camp of the Philistines, to the birds of the air, to the beasts of the earth. And all of Israel will know that there's a God in Israel. All the earth will know. Look at this. And because of this, all the, this was at stake here. All the earth is going to know what? That I'm a great champion? No. All the earth is going to know that there is a God who's in a covenant with Israel. My brothers, the earth needs to know that the God we worship is real. The earth needs to know that the God we serve, the God who has saved us, is real that there is a God in His church. The earth needs to know that. But it wasn't just the earth. And 
than all this assembly. The Israelites who have a covenant with God, all this assembly will know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. In other words, the church needs to know that the battle's not with the things we do. It's not with our programs. It's not with our natural resources. It's nice to have them. But the, Lord, the battle is not won with those things. The battle is the Lord's. It's interesting that Apostle talked about Jesus' training his disciples. And the last thing he told them before he was raised up is he said, I've taught you and I've trained you. And I've been with you. I've sent you out. You've come back and you've watched me, and I've had you do what I do. And now I'm going to be raised from the dead. I'm going to, I'm going to ascend into heaven. You still don't have everything you need. There's one thing lacking. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. But you need to wait in Jerusalem. You need to wait in Jerusalem until you're endued with power from on high. Because when you're endued with the power from on high then you will have the ability to do what I did, and then they will know that there is a God among you. We're living at a time when the young people are crying out for something authentic. They see us older folks, and I'm even older than Apostle. They see us older folks, and just not in, in chronological age, but in experience, who get so used to our routines and so used to church and our church, church uh, uh, programs and our church routines that they look at it and they say, well, where's the real? Especially when they see us one way in church and another way out in the world. They see us one way in church and another way at home. And they're looking for something. They want to see what's real. They want to know because they want to learn. They're learners, and we teach them by our example. And there's a real trend out there for the young generation now to have nothing to do with organized church. And one of the things they say is, we don't see anything authentic. And so now there's a movement among churches to appeal to them with lights and smoke and all this stuff. And we just upgraded everything, and we've got more modern, modern lights and things like that. But I keep reminding our congregation, the young generation is not going to be one with lights and sound and smoke and laser. I've been in churches where there's laser things going all over the place. And it's just very attractive, but it draws them into their natural senses. And all I could say is there, it, there's nothing more authentic than the actual presence of God. There's nothing more authentic than the presence of God because then they'll know that there really is a God and He is in His church. But to do that, it's going to take men who learn to think differently than we were trained in the world to think, who learn to hear differently than we were trained to listen in the world, and learn to talk differently than the people around us are talking. And you know the rest of the story. You know how David, it's interesting, one of the, the, the verses that really strikes me is once David's, oh, I've got to tell you how the story happens. Oh, the best part. Got to picture this. Now, here's the scene. You've got Goliath over here, 9, 12 feet tall. It described his armor for a reason. There's a reason when the Bible gives us detail. It's got a bronze helmet over him. One of the things they would do with a bronze helmet, it was to protect the vulnerable parts. Temple, but the next most vulnerable part is right here above the nose because there's an avenue up in there into the brain. So the thickest part of the helmet would be down over the nose 
to protect the forehead and this part in here. He had that. He had his armor. He had the male armor on. He had the bronze on. He had a shield, the, the, the small shield, but he had a shield bearer out in front of him. And uh, now a, a buckler was a, was a it was the Captain America type of thing. But a shield was, to, was head to toe. And this armor bearer, this shield bearer, had to be out in front of him at an angle sufficient enough so there's no direct access to him. I wish I, had a, I could use Apostle's board up here. You know, you've got the Goliath here. And, you have, and the angle that it would have to go to would be such that it would have to go over his head or hit the shield. Now remember what David said. I don't come with you with spears and swords and javelins, but I come, my weapon is the name of the Lord of hosts who, by the way, you've defied. David takes a stone out of his pouch and runs towards him. Because David said, I want Israel to know that the battle is not won with those things because the battle is the Lord's. David takes this sling like this, whirls it around, and lets the stone fly. It dawned on me one day, picturing this in my mind, that stone could never possibly have gone at a direct route to hit the this, hit. Goliath, because that's the purpose of the shield bearer out there. So what David had to do was to take the stone and throw it up in the air. It didn't matter where, because what happened was God grabbed it, and God threw it down. There's no way David's stone could... They were shocked that he could be dead by a stone hitting a bronze helmet that was intended to resist things much more powerful than a stone thrown by a shepherd boy. So there's no way that stone killed Goliath because of David's skill. But it was David's faith. Because he threw it up in the name of the Lord of hosts, whom Goliath had defied. And God takes it. I don't know how he did it. That's their business. And he threw it down, and it penetrated and he killed him on the spot. And I love the, the verse goes on. It says, David went to cut his head off, and David, David didn't even have a sword of his own. So David had to take the enemy's sword and cut his own head off with his own sword. Now let me ask you this question. What's the giant in your life? What's the issue in your life? Is it a health issue? Is it a family issue? Is it maybe an issue you have with some kind of addiction, drugs, pornography? Is there some issue in your life that keeps telling you who you are and what you can't do when inside of you vision stirs up? Inside of you the Spirit of God rises in you. It begins to give you a hope. And just about the point, there have been, there's, there's been, been one in my life where, where, where it's like, we had a dog. Those of you who were in school of ministry remember Mandy. It was a little miniature poodle that we had. And Mandy, until I got her trained, you, just, you couldn't let her loose. And we have a, a place in Maine. We take her out on the beach in Maine. And I had this long rope. It probably was 50 feet long, 30 feet long. And we'd hook it to her collar so she could run around. And I'll never forget this story. She's out there with us. We're sitting on the beach. And some, somebody came riding by on a horse. And Mandy sits up like this and goes chasing after the horse. Mandy thought she was free. <laughs> Until she hit the 50-foot mark. 
and then suddenly she had a reality check. She was still chained. And her, she was going full force. Her legs went out from underneath her. Her neck goes back like this. And she went thud down on the sand, got up, shook herself over, and what has happened to me? Some of you know what that's like. Because there, you'll get vision in you. You'll be, get hope in you. You'll hear messages like today. And you'll go home full of vision. And something will come up tonight or tomorrow. And you'll get running towards something. You'll get running towards God. And all of a sudden, this chain stops you cold. And you're frozen. And it's a reminder, you're not free at all. I've still got you. You may have been saved 10 years, 20 years. I've still got you. You need to see that as a giant in your life. You need to begin to speak to it. It's an uncircumcised giant. But how could David do this? And here's the key. This is why we started in Psalm 1. The man that wrote that psalm is this young boy. And I don't believe he wrote it sitting in the king's palace. He wrote this through, he may have written it then, but it was through his experiences out in the wilderness. See, when he's sitting out there, he didn't have his iPhone with him. He couldn't watch Netflix. He couldn't watch this and that. He couldn't know. He had no other. There was just David, God, and the smelly sheep. And then whatever's out there in the middle of the night that he can hear but he can't see. And David used that time to do what he said in Psalm 1, to delight himself in the Lord, to meditate on the covenant, to meditate that's why I took the time to go back to what God said to Abram. To meditate on, okay. on the covenant that he had with God. That he belonged to God. and God belonged to him. See, this didn't come out of him because he'd just been to a church the night before and heard this message. Because you can hear this and leave here today inspired, hopeful. But you've got to take the time. And this is where many, most Christians fail. You've got to take the time to take what you hear that the Spirit of God touches you with, and then you've got to meditate on it. Meditate on it. Meditate on it. Meditating is not reading. You need to read your Bible. You need to study your Bible. There are some things you need to memorize, but none of those are meditating. To read your Bible and then to go on is like tasting your food this morning and turning to the person next to you, "Boy, boy, these potatoes are good. These eggs are delicious. Wow, they're the best I've had since I was here last week. And then spit them out on your plate. You've experienced it. You've experienced the, the, you've experienced the benefit of those eggs or of that sweet roll or whatever you had. You've experienced the benefit, but it doesn't do you any good because it never became part of you. But meditating on the Word, and you can do that while you're driving to work, you can do that day, during the day when you don't have to concentrate on anything else. And I found that instead of taking a whole bunch of scriptures, just take one. And begin, it's like chewing on it slowly, getting everything out of it. And what gradually happens as you do that, it begins to become part of you. And once it becomes part of you, when the giant pops his head up, that's what will come out of you, not out of your head, out of your heart. Remember the, the movie, The Karate Kid? Remember that? The one part I remember more than anything else. You know the story when the, the master takes this kid and takes him under his wing to teach him karate because he wants to beat this guy that's been beating him up, the giant in his life? 
and the master takes him and he says, I'm here to be trained. Just what we talked about. I'm here to be taught and trained. And he's expecting to be taught these moves like this. And he says, here. He gives him a bucket and some wax. And he says, see this car? Wax on, wax off. Wax on, wax off. So the kid gets that job done, goes back and said, I did it. He says, oh, no, all the rest of these cars. So the middle, come near the, sometime after it's dark, he comes back, comes back the next day. He says, all right, I'm ready to learn. He says, here's a paint bucket. You paint up, you paint down. You paint up, you paint down. And he does a couple of, he says, how? He says, this whole thing. And then he has him, what, sand something on and off? And finally, the kid's had it. He says, I'm not learning anything. I'm not getting anything. See, as you're doing this, it doesn't look like anything's happening. It doesn't look like anything's happening. But it's the, it's, it's, the, it's the prescription that's been given in the Word. And as you did it, all of a sudden you get so frustrated, which you can get with God sometimes when nothing seems to be working. And he says, I'm tired of doing so. I'm tired of serving you. I'm tired of serving you. This isn't getting me anywhere. And the master says, come here a minute. And the master goes, and he, goes foo, 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 foo. he does all these things he didn't know he could do because he didn't realize that day in and day out, consistently doing, was building in him the very things he needed that sitting, talking to the master would have gotten in his head, but it would never have become a part of him. David saw the same thing that Saul saw, that the army saw, but he heard the same words that they heard, but he, he saw them and heard them to remind and a heart that had been renewed to who God really is. And you and I live in a generation that everything's quick, everything's fast. Just as the apostle said, information's quick to the point that you can... I didn't think people were checking on me while I was preaching, but now I'm going to (laughs) look. Instant. So we expect instant result. We expect instant change. But the giant is real. The threat is real. Some people try to avoid it by pretending it's not real. The threat is real. But God and His Word is more real. God's perspective is more real. And there's so much at stake in this because the earth needs to know that there is a God in among His people. And this assembly needs to know that man does not win by sword and shield, by the weapons that the world uses. Because the battle, keep in mind, whatever battle you're going through, whatever battle your church may be going through, whatever battles they're in, it's not your battle. The battle is the Lord's. This is why Paul wrote in a spiritual battle, Ephesians 6.10, Finally, my brethren, be strong. He wrote that because and if you look in, in Acts 20, he tells them, well, when I leave, wolves are going to come in. There's going to be an attack on this church. And he writes them how to be prepared. Yeah. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his might, yes, so that you may be able to stand in the evil day when the giant comes and then put on the armor of God. Yeah. 
the armor that belongs to God so that you may be able to stand and be victorious. Let's pray. Father, I don't know right now what giants are presenting themselves to the men that are in this room right now. I don't know what challenges there are in their personal life, in their family life, maybe even in their church. I don't know what challenges there are in their job or whether it's because they don't have a job. I don't know what those giants are telling them, but I know the bottom line message is that they can't make it, they're going to be devoured, and they need to be consumed with fear. Father, I take authority right now in the name of Jesus over every spirit that's lying to them. We break your authority and power over them. Father, I ask you this morning, by the power of the Holy Spirit inside of each one of us, that you would open our eyes to begin to see the giants in our life, what they've been doing to us, and we begin to recognize what your word says about them. In Jesus' name. I want you to stand with me a minute. Giant, Giant. I call you uncircumcised. You have no covenant with God. I am a child of God. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you defy a child that belongs to the living God? How dare you defy the word of the living God? I am a child of God. I have a blood covenant with God. I am more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You shall not stop me, but I will defeat you, not in my might, not in my power, for the battle is the Lord's. My God shall bring victory over you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now act like you're victorious. Act like you're victorious. Act like you're victorious.